This is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA, the Latin American Studies Association. EconoPolitics aims to foster greater dialogue between academics and practitioners throughout the region and to discuss major regional issues. I'm Joseph Marks, host of EconoPolitics. Welcome to today's show. Hello and welcome to another season of EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LAZA, the Latin American Studies Association. We are delighted to begin a new season with a selection of colleagues and specialists who, like us, are interested in the region, bring new insights, information, and opinions about Latin America. Today's guest is Ernesto Revilla, head of Latin American economics at Citibank in New York. Bienvenido, Ernesto. We're delighted to have you on the program. Muchas gracias, Joseph. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Fantastic. Ernesto, I've always wanted to have a professional economist, a working um, economist on the show for a long time, someone who does exactly what you do. There is much to cover, but for the benefit of our graduate students and others who are interested in a career as a regional economist or as an analyst, Perhaps you can begin by quickly describing how you and your team work. How do you divide chores? What specializations are you looking for when you hire? And um, how do you review the mountain of information you have access to, to produce your weekly and monthly reports? What drives your agenda? Sure. So I am the head of the Latin American economics team at Citi. Uh, I am the chief economist for Latin America, which means that I have a team of economists that follow different countries in Latin America, both to, to follow what's happening on the economics, the politics, and very importantly, to make the macroeconomic forecasts. So we are the ones in charge in the bank to forecast how much GDP is gonna grow, what's going to be the inflation rate, um, interest rates and effects, and then publish our views, publish our forecast and talk to clients of the bank that would be interested in the region. And these clients could be uh, institutional investors, could be corporates, could be clients of cities private bank, for example, that are interested of investing in Latin America. So it's, it's very interesting work um, because you are exposed uh, to many different clientels, different asset classes, of course, the different countries and it's very rewarding. Um, it's a small team relatively because investment banks have been uh, shrinking the size of economic research teams. So we are about seven in my team. We have economists locally, for example, in Sao Paulo, in Mexico City, we had in Bogota, and then a few of us are in New York City. And the way we divide the work is basically by countries. We have the Mexico economist and his team, the Brazilian economist and his team, uh, then a Southern Cone economist, an Andean economist, a Caribbean and Central American economist. And our work, uh, as, you, uh, as you correctly said, is how to receive the ton of information that is out there, uh, synthesize it, take what's important and give a story. So uh, in a sense, it's like drinking from a fire hose uh, receiving all of these uh, tons of data. But uh, fortunately, technology has helped a lot. Uh, there are great databases. There are great sources of information. 
And um, the economists in my team are really fantastic. They have a lot of experience in interpreting this data, in doing their forecast, and in uh, publishing our views. Is there any type of professional measurement? Um, does the industry look at your recommendations and then a year later saying, okay, 70% of what you said, uh, does such a thing exist? Or how, how, where's the testing of um, the validity of, of your work? It's a great question. Uh, there is, there, there are different um, surveys um, that people rank different research teams on different measures. One of them is how accurate are your, your forecasts? And we, we have uh, achieved high marks in terms of forecasting, but of course, um, clients and the market under, understands that forecasting, it's, uh, it's a difficult uh, art and science. And as, as the quote used to say, it's hard to forecast, uh, especially the future, right? So everybody understands that an exposed assessment of forecast might be useful, might be not. You, you might have got lucky. But I think what clients appreciate is the consistency of your views, the discussion, the depth of the discussion that you can have. Uh, what do you bring to the table that is not uh, usually uh, discussed out there? So it's a subjective, I would say, um, ranking in our business because we don't have a profit and loss uh, accounting as in other areas of, of the bank or of businesses, but people value the quality of the economic discussion that you bring to the table. Fantastic. Ernesto, let's get to the heart of our discussion and ask you to give us your general overview of the macroeconomic perspectives for the region in 2022. Of course, um, 22 is going to be a volatile year for Latin America, mostly because external conditions are changing so much from 2021. What I mean by this is that if you look at 2021, Latin America enjoyed fantastic external conditions, almost ideal. And these are summarized by very strong recovery of the US economy, a very strong recovery of China, high commodity prices, which are great for Latin America. And all of this in an environment of low uh, interest rates by the Fed. So it's hard to design a better uh, external environment for the region. It's, as I say, near ideal temperature for Latin America, fantastic external sector. But 2022 is almost exactly the opposite. The US is not growing as fast. China, for the first time in 30 years, will grow less than 5%, except in 2020, which was, of course, the pandemic. But it's very low growth rates for China in 2022 or 2023, in our view, which is a headwind for the region. Commodity prices, in our view, will not continue increasing. And the biggest factor for markets and economies this year is the Fed. Uh, of course, it will hike. The question is by how much. We think that starting in March, we will have a 50 uh, basis points hike by the Fed. And I think there's going to be significant monetary tightening in the US just because inflation is running so high in the US. And whenever you have a hiking cycle in the US, Latin America and emerging markets have a hard time. So external conditions are changing. Uh, the biggest problem that I see for Latin America in 2022, and actually in the next decade, is low growth. It's probably the biggest problem for the region, because there's something like a broken growth model in Latin America. If external conditions have changed so much, and China is not going to be pushing commodity prices higher, and we are not going to have so much of an external impulse, Latin America has to generate growth domestically. But there's 
no narrative of growth in the region. There are few or any reforms for growth. Um, productivity, as we know, is low. There are political problems almost in any country. So it's hard to see what's going to be the source of growth going forward. And that's what concerns me the most, uh, low growth, which will eventually show up in the macro in um, small uh, reductions in poverty and inequality, which is very important in the region. So low growth is the biggest problem in the next decade, in my view. Let's look at some specific cases and, uh, and obviously uh, begin by with the country you know well and I like very much. Let's look at Mexico. Um, how does Mexico look like uh, in the next uh, coming year, 12 months? I think Mexico is very interesting right now macroeconomically because something's happening that, by the way, is now, I think, being replicated in Peru and probably Chile, which is the following observation. You have a president that campaigned and won on a platform that was very radical and transformative. Uh, really, uh, there is a lot of unrest and discontent in the region, as you know, and both AMLO in Mexico, Castillo in Peru, Boric in Chile, won on a very radical and um, really non-business, non-market-friendly platform that scared a lot of people in their campaigns. But then it turns that they get into power, particularly AMLO, and he has been macroeconomically very responsible, uh, very neoliberal to abuse the word that, that AMLO uses a lot to criticize the previous three decades, but he has kept a very tight fiscal policy. He has respected the autonomy of the central bank. He has renegotiated the free trade agreement with the US. So macroeconomically, Mexico looks very good compared to other countries in Latin America. Low levels of debt, low levels of deficits, uh, very uh, strong external accounts and so on. But on the microeconomic side, uh, there's a lot of deterioration. There's a lot of uh, concern on the investment in, in investor community in Mexico about uh, the additional rules and regulations. Corruption is still very high, despite the rhetoric of AMLO. There's a lot of insecurity. So the macro environment for doing business is bad. And that shows in low uh, producer confidence. So my point is, what happens if you combine a tight macroeconomic policy? in the case of Mexico, with a bad micro, you get low growth, which is what we have in Mexico right now. We have uh, low growth this year. We are forecasting, for example, 1.8%, which is low compared to Mexican history, and it's low for an emerging market. And the same will be true for the next few years. In fact, AMLO will average almost zero growth in his six-year administration, the lowest since the early 80s with Miguel de la Madrid. But he will not have a crisis on the fiscal front, on the external front, uh, Mexico will not lose its investment grade because the facade looks great, the macro headline numbers, but the micro is bad and the growth is bad. And that's a challenge for the next decade. How important are foreign remittances for, um, for Mexico's budget? And, uh, and then if you have all these people in the US mainly sending money to Mexico with more difficult economic situation in the US that will impact the remittances, how, how do you see that? playing a role. Exactly. Uh, remittances have turned to be extremely important for Mexico. Uh, they have been growing at extraordinary rates. In fact, I would say that uh, the forecast for remittance is the one that we analysts in general have missed the most. 
remittances were running at around $25 billion, $30 billion a year for Mexico. But after the pandemic, they, they have increased dramatically. And in 2021, they were close to $50 billion, uh, clearly outshining other sources of foreign currency for Mexico, including, including oil exports, uh, including tourism. So remittances are right now, right now very important. And they highlight the fact that Mexico has done well in the last few years because of the US. Because the US growing so strongly has helped Mexican export, has helped remittances, has helped tourism. But it goes to my previous point. What's the source of domestic growth? There are few. It's, right. it's basically help from the external sector. Now, if going forward, you think that the Fed is going to hike by a lot and that there's a probability of the U.S. slowing down a lot or maybe even going into a recession, that's obviously bad news for Mexico that depends so much on these flows. Right. Let's move to Brazil, election year in Brazil, uh, the country that could perhaps be the poster boy of um, low anemic growth. The formula just hasn't, hasn't been working. Um, how problematic do you see the situation in, in Brazil? Brazil faces a big challenge, and, and, and it was true even before the pandemic. Uh, and I, I would say that it's mostly fiscal. Uh, the, the debt dynamics in Brazil were worrying even before the pandemic because debt was increasing uh, constantly, and, and the market was worried that uh, it was unsustainable. And that's why we were discussing for a long time the pension reform in Brazil, which uh, eventually happened before the pandemic. But then there's an inter interesting comparison with Mexico. In Mexico, you have a country that has a strong fiscal fundamentals, relatively low levels of debt, and has a leftist president. In Brazil, you have a country that has no fiscal space, very high levels of debt, and a right-wing president that, had a, a, that has a finance minister that is supposedly fiscally conservatively trained in Chicago, as was I. Mm -hmm. And if you were to predict which of these two countries was going to spend the most in the pandemic, you would say, well, the country that has more fiscal space and has the left-wing president. And it turns out that it was exactly the opposite. Brazil spent a lot of money with the pandemic and Mexico spent none, exactly the opposite of what you would have predicted. So it turns out that we come after the pandemic in Brazil again with a fiscal problem, with debt dynamics which look very difficult because the central bank has been hiking the policy rate significantly from 2% to the current 10.75% in just one year. So if you combine very high interest rates with very low growth, that's bad news for debt dynamics because they will continue increasing. And that's why the election this year in Brazil is so important because whoever wins, and it looks like it's going to be a challenge between Bolsonaro and Lula, although it's still a far away and, and things can change. The big question for the market is, Whoever wins, can they do the fiscal reforms that Brazil needs? And will they have the political equilibrium and the polit political support to do it? And it's not obvious. And that's why Brazil faces a challenging uh, situation. Yeah, renewal of Congress, I think, would be very important in Brazil. Not necessarily, obviously, the figurehead of the president, but uh, to get things done. And, uh, and with so many political parties and coalitions, it becomes very, very difficult. That's exactly right. Next door in Argentina, how are relations with the IMF um, uh, elections a year from now? Um, how does Argentina look? 
We are living a very uh, dynamic and evolving situation with Argentina. It's changing day by day. So whatever I say today, I'm not sure <laughs> it's going to remain true in the next few, few days. Uh, because we have a, an important deadline on March 22, which is a big uh, payment that Argentina has to do to the IMF, which is close to $3 billion. But they don't have uh, that number even in net reserves, which are running at around $1.5 billion. So they need an agreement with the IMF before that date. Now, the biggest problem in Argentina, it's obviously fiscal. Uh, if, if, if you look at the macro numbers for Argentina, it turns out that Argentina continues living beyond their means, spending more than what they get in revenue, and they finance the gap with uh, money printing. So this is clearly an unsustainable macro situation. And if you were to design a program for Argentina, it will obviously require macroeconomic adjustment, uh, basically on the fiscal side, but nobody wa wants to do that because it's political suicide. So the current administration do not want to do it, but they would want to get an agreement with the IMF but I think that the market is now discounting that even if they get an agreement, which is the base scenario right now, is not going to be the solution to the problems. It's going, going to only postpone the situation and the adjustment until after the election. Uh, so very fragile macroeconomic situation, very tight deadlines. Uh, I'm really concerned that even this government uh, is not willing to do the necessary fiscal adjustment because politically it's very difficult and the Peronistas even do not agree with the diagnostic that the problem is fiscal. They, they blame uh, other things. Does, does Wall Street in Washington look at the mayor of Buenos Aires as, a, as someone who might uh, step in? Um, I, I don't know. Um... Definitely. Yeah, okay. Definitely. Uh, Rodriguez Larreta is, is a very important player. He's now uh, probably... Uh, the flag bearer for the for the opposition, um, um, Cambiemos. Uh, I, I don't know how they are named right now. Something uh, <laughs> close to Cambiemos, but but definitely. And he's he he has been working well uh, in, in Buenos Aires. He has a good economic team. The popularity of the current governor go, government, um, Alberto Fernandez, and the popularity of Cristina Fernandez has has suffered a lot because of the crisis. So it's going to be a competitive election. Uh, but again, the problem is not only uh, if, if the opposition wins, but if they can govern uh, with the political opposition and Congress. And again, Argentina, it's uh, back to the future. It's kind of the same problems we've been having over and over. And again, I will point that if you look at the fundamental problem, it's fiscal and, and it's hard to solve. Chile has been in the news, uh, occupying a lot of editorial space. Um, and um, still very early days of, of the new government, but how do, you, how do you view Chile? I think Chile has definitely changed. Uh, and if you look at uh, macro numbers, if you look at the valuation of asset prices, Chile is now Latin American, if you allow me to say that phrase. Uh, Chile was not part of Latin America in, in macroeconomic terms for a long time, it was clearly uh, differentiated, behaving in many dimensions like an advanced country. But after the protest of 2019, and really after the last decade, uh, something has happened in Chile that the rate of potential growth has clearly come down. Uh, confidence has come down. Now there's a lot of more policy uncertainty in Chile. And the constitutional reform process, which is going to be long and uh, arduous, uh, it's causing uncertainty, of course. Now, having said that, 
I think that if any country can find a third way between the neoliberalism that took care of the macro numbers but didn't pay much attention to distribution and inequality and the reduction of poverty, which was obviously wrong, but also not going to a model that causes a lot of macro instability, which has also been the case in Latin America. If, if someone can find that a third way, I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that it can be Chile because the strength of its institutions is clearly different from the rest of Latin America. Boric, the president, which has not yet taken formally office, has already named his cabinet, which is a moderate cabinet. He, he named the very respected governor of the central bank, Mario Marcel, as his finance minister. And that was a great signal for, for, for the markets and for investors that they will change the Chilean economy, but in an orderly way, in a sustainable way. So I hope, uh, but obviously the level of uncertainty is high. The market is preoccupied and you can see that the valuation of asset prices in Chile is heavily discounted because people are worried about what, what might happen. Um, Colombia in uh, recent years has always been sort of in a class by itself um, doing relatively better than many of its neighbors. Is that still the case? It's still the case and it's a great observation because when you talk to Colombians, they are always worried about their country, about their economy, but that's almost true across the region. Uh, locals are usually more worried than uh, foreigners because foreigners, of, of course, uh, see the country in relative terms compared to other emerging markets, and they don't have to live the day-to-day -day, uh, uh, news cycle. So Colombia clearly has a different rate of growth compared to other Latin American countries. Last year, it grew more than 10%. We just knew the official number. Uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before. So very strong rate of domestic activity. Uh, it has a government that is very business friendly, very market friendly, very future oriented. And that's an exception right now in Latin America. And it has built a political consensus across uh, many different political parties and in the wide society that uh, fiscal responsibility is important and good management is important. In fact, Colombia is the only country in Latin America that has, nev has never defaulted. Um, and that's really something in, in, in this region. So they will have a contentious election this year. There's a candidate, Gustavo Petro, that worries uh, some in, on, in, on the local business community and the market. But I do think that Colombia is on the right path, if, even if there are macroeconomic challenges. They have a big fiscal deficit. They have a big current account deficit. The government is aware of the need of uh, adjustment in those areas. But I think that the quality of policy is relatively high compared to others in the region right now. I can't help but ask, um, is there any bright light, light in Central America, Northern Triangle? Is that, I'm sure it's a, it's a region where probably you don't spend too much time. Uh, and it's not a region that I cover well, but um, do, do you have any idea of how the, those, mainly those three uh, economies uh, are doing in, in, in the Northern Triangle, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua? If you push me uh, to think about a bright light for, for them, it would, be, it would be coming mostly, again, from the external conditions and from the U.S. Uh, a U.S. that uh, continues growing strongly uh, has helped uh, remittances. 
the reopening of the global economy after the pandemic means that tourism is getting back to some of these places uh, in, in Central America. Not, not all of them are big attractors of tourism, but some of them are. Uh, um, if the U.S. manages a soft landing, it will be very good for this region. But there are many challenges, of course, uh, in, in all of uh, Central America and not only in the, in the Northern Triangle, particularly El Salvador, uh, a lot of people didn't pay a lot of attention before. And now because of all the Bitcoin discussion, uh, I have a lot of clients uh, that are asking about Salvador, what is happening with uh, President Bukele making Bitcoin legal tender, and they are going to uh, issue a Bitcoin bond probably in March. So there's a lot of noise coming from El Salvador, but the IMF has already said that it's very risky for El Salvador to compromise a lot of their public finances on such a volatile um, currency or asset. So we are watching carefully. It's definitely an experiment, but I think that it has uh, the probability of something bad happening if we get a lot of volatility coming from the Fed or from global financial markets. Right. Ernesto, the issues of inequality and poverty in the region are perhaps uh, the two issues that are the most studied by our listeners. And I know that your focus is to find investment opportunities in the region, but I wonder if investors ever consult you or, or look at the basic building blocks of development and look at things such as um, education, health, employment, which are intrinsically linked to poverty, inequality, and eventually uh, economic growth and economic performance. It's an extremely interesting topic because I would say that uh, normally these wouldn't be topics that Wall Street or um, institutional investors were going to be too focused about, uh, caring more about the short term, caring more about uh, uh, the movement of asset prices in the region. But I have to say that something has changed and is changing where there is more attention paid uh, to topics of poverty, inequality, distribution, and the long-term determinants of economic growth, which are uh, health and education. And it matters now to investors um, and to the wider business community, because now we know that it affects obviously growth uh, and, and that is extremely important, but it also affects uh, social discontent, unrest and politics in the region. I don't think you can understand the region right now without uh, seeing that these concerns are extremely high on the list of people uh, in Latin America, and that drives politics and that drives economic policy. So there's more attention paid uh, to those topics, fortunately. Um, and also, I think that everybody's aware that the region has to advance in a more uh, sustainable uh, and more equitable path of growth. But I think people are worried that some of the policy proposals that have been put in the table in Latin America by some of these presidents are unfortunately not going to solve the problem that they want to solve, that they have the right diagnosis. For example, I, I think that AMLO has the right diagnosis for Mexico. Mexico has suffered a lot from a lot of corruption, insecurity and inequality, but I don't think his policies are going to deliver uh, on that promise. And in that gap is where investors right now are trying to think in Latin America what's going to help, what's not going to help, and what does the future look, look like? Does, does any um, country in the region impress you with their um, 
policy regarding uh, innovation, uh, human capital? Um, is there any smart government doing uh, very effective uh, planning and, and um, investing in, the, in these um, sectors? It's happening, but not so much at the level of governments. It's happening organically in, in society. Uh, governments that are future-oriented in the region right now, unfortunately, are few. And I would put only probably Colombia in that bucket, uh, Uruguay, which is, is also a success story. Uh, the government in Colombia, very future-oriented. President Duque talks about the orange economy, which is really uh, talking about innovation and the new technologies uh, uh, going into the future. But regardless that governments are not necessarily pushing it, there is a tech renaissance in Latin America, where you have lots of innovation hubs in some countries and technology companies that are growing fast and even becoming unicorns, as they call them in the business uh, community, uh, companies that are valued at more than $1 billion. And um, it's happening. Uh, it's happening. In fact, they are calling some places now um, these innovation hubs, for example, Santiago, uh, Chile. Now they call it Chile con Valley. <laughs> uh, kind of similar to Silicon Valley. And it, there are some hubs that are giving me hope. They are not moving the needle yet macroeconomically. It doesn't show yet in the big macro numbers, but it's an extremely interesting story where Latin America can hopefully leapfrog the uh, other emerging markets in jumping uh, to another stage of development by not going linearly, right, from commodity producer, then to manufacturing with low uh, value added, then to manufacturing with high value added, and then to technology. Why not Why not, not just jump from commodity producer to high tech uh, hubs in some places? That That's a great idea. I hope it works in some places, but uh, we are, we're watching. You, you started earlier by mentioning how your team was organized and uh, the country specialists. Is it possible to look at the region uh, systemically? And um, so when, you're, when your specialist talks about Chile, is your specialist who deals with, um, with Peru or, uh, or, or when you look at Mercosur, um, and you know, if you have a strong opinion about what's going to happen in country X, you can already sort of um, uh, model what the effect will be uh, regionally, or is that still uh, not very deep, that integration? No, it is. It is deep, and it's one of the very important um, parts of our job. And, and, and one of the things I like a lot about working in a big global bank is that you have a big global team, uh, and there's a lot of uh, interaction and communication between uh, people in the global economics team. So exactly as you said, if someone is working in Argentina in a particular topic, uh, it turns out that maybe Turkey or South Africa have had similar experiences and there's a lot of cross collaboration. So it's really bringing a global platform to think about local issues. And I, I find that very exciting. And it's not only on the economics. Um, outside the economics research team, there's a big team of uh, researchers, uh, not about countries, but about sectors, right? You, you, you have equity analysts following uh, whatever it is, technology, mining, uh, chemical companies, energy companies. And then uh, you have also those kind of cross-pollination um, uh, communications, which is very exciting.
So in, in market speak, Latin America in 2022, is this a fixed income play, an equity play, a currency play? Where, where does smart money look at Latin America to make money this year? I think it can potentially become an important fixed income play if the U.S. manages a soft landing for the following reason. Uh, that means that you will have a number of hikes by the Fed, but it will not cause a U.S. recession. And then that will give a space for Latin American central banks to stop their hiking cycles, which started in 2021. They've been hiking rates aggressively in Latin America. In fact, you have uh, some of the most hawkish central banks in Latin America right now hiking rates aggressively. But the market loves when you approach the end of a hiking cycle, uh, because that means that eventually they will start reducing rates and that's a fixed income play. Um, equity, I would say not in the first observation, because what I mentioned, the biggest problem for Latin America is low, low growth. And that's obviously not good for equity markets that care about long-term growth, except for one thing, valuations. Uh, equity markets in Latin America were already very cheap in 2021. So paradoxically, you are now seeing a lot of money coming into Latin American equity markets, even if future low is growth, but just because the assets were so cheap. Uh, valuations were cheap and there's a lot of money coming in and the Mexican stock exchange and the Brazilian stock exchange have done uh, well. And FX uh, usually uh, does badly whenever you have a US hiking rate, uh, the US Fed hikes rates, that means the dollar strengthens, that means emerging market currencies um, weaken and depreciate. Uh, so that's probably not a place to be right now, again, except if you are uh, very aggressive or move very fast and uh, use uh, dislocated valuations in some currencies. But I would say that that's not the trend right now. I think you're in mute, uh, Joseph. Nesta, sorry. Yes. This is my, uh, we're quickly running out of time, um, but um, we can't let you leave without uh, my favorite part of the show, which is to ask our guests for one or two special recommendations in the region, um, a favorite restaurant, uh, a sporting venue, a nature site. Um, in all your travels, um, what, would you, what would you recommend uh, for our listeners? This is a fantastic question, and I love uh, this part of your podcast. And I would say uh, I am from Mexico, so, so I will go back to Mexico City, one of the greatest cities in the world uh, for, for food. Uh, and I will go with uh, taquerias. And let me mention two, uh, Los Panchos. Uh, it's a traditional uh, taqueria uh, that, that, that serves carnitas, the traditional fried pork uh, meat in Mexico. And that's right ne next to the famous neighborhood of Polanco. It's in Anzures. Uh, but there's another one, and uh, you will be probably surprised because it's, it's, it's a little bit more commercial. It's a chain. Probably you know it. It's called Califa. But it's a fantastic taqueria uh, for anybody that visits I know Mexico it, yeah. because it's uh, high quality. It's great for anyone. It's good if, if you're vegan. If it's great if you like uh, all kinds of things. So I love Califa. I love Los Panchos. And that would be my, my quick recommendations. <laughs> Two fantastic recommendations. Ernesto, this has been a great conversation. We must have you back again very soon. Um, so thank you very much, Ernesto. Gracias. Gracias, and uh, hope to see you soon.
Right. To our listeners and followers, thank you for listening and supporting EconoPolitics. Please spread the word and stay in touch. Let us know what you think of today's episode and tune in again next time for another episode of EconoPolitics. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for another episode of EconoPolitics.